Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, joined by my co-host, Daniel. Say hello, Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Nicholas, say hey, Nicholas. How are you? And Henry, say hi, Henry. <laughs> hello. And this afternoon, we're joined by a very special guest, prolific composer of some of your favorite horror flicks, including, but not limited to, Reanimator, From Beyond, Puppet Master Ghoulies, Bride of Reanimator, Mr. Richard Ban. Richard, how the hell are you? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure to be Zooming with you guys. <laughs> The pleasure's all ours, sir. So just to get us started here, take us back in time to when you were a youngster. What sort of films, oh. books, comics, what, what got your juices flowing back in the day? Well, let's see. Well, first of all, I think for those of you who don't know, I actually was not brought up in this country. I was brought up in Italy. My father was a producer, director, and writer, and I had the great benefit of going over when I was a child. I guess I was about five or six years old. My father went to do a film in Sweden called Face of Fire with Richard Widmark and Theodore Bikel and a few other people. And so we spent about six months in Sweden, after which we then went to live in Paris for about a year. And it was during that time that Rome, Italy, was fast becoming what would be known as the Hollywood of Europe. So they were doing a lot of films in that point. And, and so we, my parents, so they took us and we moved from Paris to Italy, and where I grew up and spent the next almost 11 years there. And that was during the great period of all the spaghetti westerns and the Hercules movies, right? All of those. So I grew up in the film business and, you know, had many occasions to go on location shoot when I wasn't in school. And so be it Yugoslavia, Spain, France, what have you. And it was an incredible experience growing up abroad. That was sort of obviously my inspiration as far as films goes, as far as, as far as films went. From a musical standpoint, it was interesting that on one of those location shoots, I guess I was about 10 or 11 years old, we went to shoot a film in Spain. So we were there, I guess, a couple of months in Spain, but that's kind of what changed my life because in this film that my father was directing and producing. It was a Western and it had Joseph Cotton in it and I think Robert Ryan and one of the Mitchum sons and what have you. But the very first night we arrived in Spain, in Madrid, my father took us out to a dinner. And after the dinner, we went across the square to a flamenco show. And I had never been obviously to Spain or a flamenco show, but it was that night where I just totally freaked out and fell in love with the guitar and the next day I literally went out and bought myself a guitar and started playing guitar and within about a year was proficient enough to start putting my own bands together back in Italy of course and that's where it all started was that flamenco show and that guitar playing which just totally blew me away that was the beginning when did you know you wanted to be a composer? Yeah, that came significantly later. I guess about, I guess it was about two or three years after, well, at, okay, basically what happened, so I come back to Italy, I'm, I have the guitar, and then after about a year, I formed some bands, and then I sort of become the uh, a rock and roller person and started touring around as a very young person. I actually started touring when I was like 12 years old, had a like a five-piece, four or five-piece band, and we or touring around mainly Italy at that point. Later, it would be most of Europe, but at that point, it was mo mostly Italy. And what was fascinating and another very impressionable moment was on one of the films my father did, I went to, for the first time, the scoring session where they were doing the music. And I was just blown away. Here I was on a scoring stage with like a 50 or 60 piece 
Chinese orchestra and they were doing the music to one of my father's films. It was it was a Western again. I don't remember which one. I think it was The Tramplers, the name of the film. In any case, so here I am for the first time hearing an orchestra and seeing it scored to film on a stage and it just blew me away. And then I was introduced, keep in mind at this point, I'm like, what, maybe 13 or something like that. And then I was introduced to, there were three composers involved. One guy was kind of the boss composer, but the other, so there were three main people doing the music. And I wouldn't learn this till maybe a year or so later that one of uh, the main composer guy was in fact Ennio Morricone. So that that <laughs> left quite an impression. But years later, when I found out about it, at the point, I'm the 13-year-old kid learning rock and roll. What do I know, right? So it just so happened that, you know, ended up seeing this session with an orchestra and it always left a very big impression on me. It's not that I knew I wanted to do film composing at that point. I was still kind of a rock and roll jazz sort of guy and into, you know, Beatles, Frank Zappa and jazz. Jean-Luc Ponty and what have you. Those two experiences, obviously the first one with the guitar and then running into that scoring session years later, left a big impression. I always loved music. I always stayed with music. But knowing about the film composing part wouldn't come for another decade or so. That was that was different. That was well after I was back living in the United States. Was there any recording that went on before the composing happened? Was there any recording with those bands that still exist? Or was that strictly touring? No, I have some old recordings from 50 odd years ago. Yeah, I still have some recordings. But has any of that ever been published for the public? No. No. Any plans to? No, no. It's, you know, <laughs> crazy band stuff from when I was a young kid. You know, you know, I, I, no, no, no plans, no plans to. But it was fun. I ended up touring around Europe up until the age of uh, almost eighteen. You know, and we got better. And I had a couple of more bands. You know, from basically, I had one or two bands in the last two or three years that I was in Italy. And those are the ones where we toured, toured around mostly Italy, but other parts of Europe. And it was a great time. It was a great time to be in, in Europe. It was a great time to be in Italy. But then around 1969-ish, the film industry started to die over there a little bit. And so we ended up coming back to this country and I think it was 1970 or 71 and been here. I've been here ever since. Never moved, never moved back there, although that is still the, my home and my heart, so to speak. Were you classically trained or completely self-taught? No, I was totally self-taught up until the time I came back here. Then I went, I then I studied music here first in a uh, liberal arts college that had a great music program. And I did that for about almost three years. And then I studied privately with a couple of composers, one of whom was Doran Stalvey, who ran Monday evening concerts here in Los Angeles, uh, progressive 20th century music stuff. So I, I studied formally both in college and then and then afterwards privately the formal training came in way after the fact keep in mind i'm like almost 18 years old i'm still in the rock and roll jazz mode right i'm not thinking about film music at all you know back in europe i had a certain amount of notoriety i had a band we were all americans there was a certain degree of celebrity we were touring, we were doing very well. And so when I came back here, you know, my thinking was, oh, I'll just pick it up here and put a band together. <laughs> Little did I know that back here, you know, every third person person walking down the street wanted to be a rock and roller or a rock, you know, do, you know, be in a band and do that. So sort of, I, I realized that luster that I had back in Europe didn't really exist here because everybody wanted to do the same thing. <laughs> Right. So <laughs> I, it was it was that it was at that point I'm going, you know, look, if I'm going to stick with music, I got to I got to really learn it, you know, from a, in a formal sense. That's when I started studying formally. What were you using back then? Like for your first films, were you just using keyboard based samplers and MIDI or were you actually using like a chamber, you know, four or five cellists and maybe one or two horns? Or anything? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. No, the very first score that I did was an all electronic score. And actually I co-scored it with Joel Goldsmith, who was Jerry Goldsmith's son. We did our first score together called Laser Blast. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the very first score that, that that we did and and it was uh, I did not have a good knowledge of electronics or anything 
at that time. Also, you have to keep in mind, these are pre-MIDI days, right? We didn't have MIDI back then. We had a few interesting new synthesizers that were on the market. Yeah, like one of the first one. well, other than like early DX7s and some early Moogs, uh, I had access to a Yamaha CS80, which actually I got, had access to that about a year before it ever came out because Joel and another friend of mine, a composer, Christopher Stone, they were doing beta testing for Yamaha and Roland. We had some access to some of those. So we threw, you know, through, through uh, contacts and favors, we, uh, you know, threw some of these items together and uh, that's the way we did Laser Blast, managed to steal time in the middle of the night at a, at a studio for a couple of weeks, you know, knocked out the score uh, that way. That was that was the very, very first one. It was all, like I said, all electronic. It, what was interesting is that after that, my second score that came up, which was, I don't know, eight months later, a year later, that would actually turn out to be my very first orchestral score, which was the daytime ended. And that I would end up going to England and record. And I recorded that with either the London or the National Symphony over in London. So it was a huge jump going from an all electronic score to my first real orchestral score for laser blast whenever you said you were recording and i'm sorry to interject it just um, before i lose the thought so you didn't this wasn't midi or anything like that so were you like recording it in real time you just you put the film up there maybe you'd have the timestamp under it but you just had to sit there and record it live you have to get more prehistoric than that. You go back to those days, you, not only did you not have MIDI, right? But we didn't have film. You couldn't see what you were doing. So what, what you had to do back in those days is you would look at the film in the cutting room on a moviola and you would figure out where the music was going to go. You'd do your basic spotting. But at that point, you would then translate that, what you saw and where you knew, felt the music needed to be, and and that would then be translated into sometimes a couple of hundred pages of just music notes with seconds and milliseconds on it that you would then have to translate into beats and seconds and create the music from. So we had one or two viewings of the movie on a little moviola, and then we then all we had was was our notes and knowing that at say 20 minutes into the film, 20 minutes and nine, 20 minutes, nine seconds, and then nine and a half seconds, we had to come in with this music and it had to go to 24 minutes and 12 seconds so you knew that was the slot then you'd have to come up with the right tempo for it and then figure out the frames to second and millisecond ratio so that you would hit all the spots that you wanted to hit in the film that's the way it was done for, for decades before way before you know midi way before quick time movies or all of this you know, it was it was a it was a lot different. All of those things they were timed out. There used to be something called the Knudsen book that was written by Earl Hagen, and it was a huge 400-page book. And all that it had in it were tempos that correlated with frames. Now, of course, if you have film, it, it being filmed being 24 frames a second. Okay, so if you had you had to create a click track, which was your tempo. So let's just say you're doing a 60 metronome setting. So you're going that's that's there's your tempo. There's your 60. Right. So that 60 you're hearing is 24 frames of film going by. Okay. now, if you wanted to go at a faster pace, let's say you're doubling it, mm -hmm. then it's 12 frames a second. If you wanted to go a lot faster, then you're at six frames or nine frames or 12.4 frames. This is, like I said, it was a book with that translated your metronome settings into frames and vice versa. So everything, all the things that you wanted to hit, okay, in the music had to line up with your metronome setting or click track. And you had to figure out how to make that work within the music. That's the way we did it. <laughs> 
damn. Let me just say, damn. I, know. <laughs> I was just wondering if y'all just like pegged down on the keyboard and hoped for the best. Damn. No, 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 no. It was all timed out and written out and all of that. It was called the Knudsen book, K-N-U-D-S-E-N. And it was by Earl Hagen, a famous composer. That begs the question, as technology has evolved, how has that changed your approach to creating scores? Do you feel that the process has gone by faster? Do you feel that in some ways you're taking more pre-film time to kind of get the idea of how you want to scope it? And then it's just one big burst. How has modern technology, I suppose, changed your approach? Or has it? Definitely the technology has changed things drastically. As far as my approach, I think my overall creative approach to filmmaking has always remained pretty consistent. In other words, I view film scoring as, and scores per se, as, uh, and I've said this many times, as sort of the third dimension in a two-dimensional medium, film being two dimensions, sight and sound. Whereas music, even though it's definitely part of the sound, it evokes something else in us. It can evoke emotions, tension, feelings of sadness. That's what I refer to as the third dimension. And I regard scoring, at least I regard good scoring, as being able to see what lies within a film project that is other than what you're seeing and hearing. In other words, I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a scene and it's a car chase. Let's just say, as any example. Yeah, you could score it as chaka, 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 you got a fast going chase, right? You could do that, right? And maybe that's appropriate. But let's say you're taking an approach that you're actually in the, the person driving the car, you're in his mind. And let's, let's say that person is driving fast and even being chased because he's in distress and in love or something. You might want to approach the scoring in a whole different manner. You might not want to do the chaka, chaka, chaka chase stuff. You might want to even play play a love theme or something totally opposite of what you're seeing on the screen. And so I've always sort of viewed scoring as trying to find out what the characters are feeling and how it's driving that character or that set of characters, how it's driving them to whatever they're doing in the film. So in other words, try to go underneath what you're seeing and hearing that's obvious because you're seeing, seeing and hearing it. So I think that's always kind of been my creative approach to scoring. From a technological standpoint, the technology, since now we have, of course, we have MIDI, now we have the benefit of uh, with like a QuickTime movie or whatever, you can put it up and you can score to it and it's right in front of you. You don't have to refer to uh, hundreds of pages of music editor notes with figures and times and, you know, all of that and breakdowns of frames. So in that sense, it's gotten, it's everything is a lot more accessible from a technological standpoint. The downside of that, though, is that back then, if I was spending a 12-hour day writing music, I was spending 12 hours actually writing music. I had my piano, let's say. I had my music paper, a good pencil, a pencil sharpener, an eraser, the Knudsen book, and I was off and going, and I could actually be writing for 10 or 12 hours a day. Today, with all of this technology, the writing part is actually diminished. The time amount is diminished because I also have to be an engineer. I have to be able to mix the music. I have to know hundreds of programs, different samples, samplers, synthesizers, all of these sorts of things. I have to know how to work my DAW on computers. I have to be able to hook up three, four, five different computers, mixers. So I have to, I had to learn all of this technology and to get it all to work properly takes a lot of time up. So I used, well, when I used to be able to write, simply write music for 10 or 12 hours a day, I'm lucky these days if I'm actually writing, being totally creative, six hours a day. That's a good day for me to spend six hours actually writing. The other four hours or what have you is spent, to be honest, dicking around with making things sound good, you know, making the samples sound right, performing them. I mean, if you, unless you're taking it all, you know, if you're doing it with an orchestra, but even then, you know, doing live stuff with orchestra, you still have to go through the same process. And now there's technology to take all of your MIDI mock-ups and put them into 
music programs that are writing out the music, copying the music. So it's it's very technological today. And I think back years ago, at least for the first 15 years I was scoring, I think it was more creative. Also, the other part of that is that since you, it, back when I started out in the first, say, again, 15 odd years, when somebody hired you, they had to have a lot of trust in you because realistically, they didn't know what's, what it was going to sound like <laughs> until you got on the stage with the orchestra. Yeah, you could have them over to your home. You could play them some themes on, on a piano. You could hum it out say, and then we're going to have the orchestra go, da, 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 da. You, you, whatever way to communicate to the producer and director or powers to be. You had that. Today, because of all this technology, most of the people, they want to hear it like before you do it. So you're having to spend a lot of time simulating, you know, what you're doing with all these samplers and synthesizers. They want six hours or 12 hours of free work before they even talk to you about actually doing the job. So that's very possible. And, you know, that trust level sort of went out the window in a certain way years ago, because now not only do they want to hear a lot of the stuff beforehand, but worse than that, because again, of the technology, they can track their films or TV shows with music that they like. So all of a sudden you're getting, they're doing a film and they put John Williams in there for a score, you know, Star Wars or Jerry Goldsmith or whatever, some huge score that, you know, costs millions of dollars to do. And they're coming to you and say, no, we only have $12, but can you make it sound like this? So they're tracking it as if that's not bad enough, but then they expect for you to kind of copy what they what they, what they they feel, what they yeah. like, because they've gotten married to the music that they've temporarily put in the film. Mm-hmm. So again, all this technology has held things in a lot of different ways, but it's also hindered things dramatically. And it's definitely, in my opinion, has cut down on the creative process because people, producers and directors, they get they tend to get married to what they put into the film. So it's very hard if they if they're set on something to break them of their concept. And that's kind of the point I was hoping to get to. It seems like though there's an organic quality. There's like a natural growth that makes in good film, there's a growth of the score becomes symbiotic with the film itself. But it seems a lot of projects now the score is an afterthought it's there only (laughs) to just drive the narrative and that's it but good film has a score that when you hear the cue the scene the feeling the emotion of that scene is summoned up and you can imagine and i know this kind of a funny aside but it's like the first time you hear the star trek score from the motion picture you can see the ship as it's flying through space after it leaves the dock but there's some music scores that are so timeless because they're symbiotic with the film itself and i think that's kind of why i think a lot of your scores when i hear that theme from puppet master or other films (laughs) like that takes me there i can see like the mischievousness of the puppets but that also like underlying maliceness i suppose and and film i don't know films aren't as nuanced as i feel older projects are but i digress no no you, you don't digress actually no you're 100 right you have, there's a big difference between what i consider scoring films and good scoring of films intelligent scoring of films that's the reason that i've always kind of remained in the independent film game. I don't like being told what to do and just sort of copying something or getting close to it or what have you. I'm just not interested in that. It's never never been my thing. It's more important to me to have a freer and creative hand when it comes to writing the whole process. That's what my love of film has come from. And it goes back to way before scoring, again, being brought up, you know, with a filmmaker father and brother for that matter, and always being in films. I really uh, do appreciate good filmmaking and story and character to bring that, to bring the best out in a film. 
you need that space to be to be creative. I mean, it's, it's, that's, it's that simple. If I was just doing it, and also that's the reason I never did a ton of TV, uh, even though I've done a lot of TV, it not, I, I wouldn't be crazy about just being on a series for two years because inevitably your creative thing on the first show or two or three, and then you're kind of just repeating it in one manner or the other for the next year or two or five seasons or whatever. It becomes less and less creative. I mean, I, I, ha I have, even though it's going back a long way, I, I really like what I did on House on Sorority Row. You know, it's, it, there was a basically a kind of a 80s slasher film, but my approach was a very thematic and lush sort of sound, which went very much against the grain of the time. But it was because of that that the score and the film got a lot of recognition. What I did in Dreams in the Witch House for Masters of Horror, that got me an Emmy nomination that I thought was very inventive and creative. Pit and Pendulum, The Resurrected yes. for sure, which by the way, the new version's coming out any day now of uh, the reissue of Resurrected. On the other side of the coin, I really like some of the stuff that I did for the more, for the family type films like Prehysteria and Moat, and that were, those were more family and kid, kid films, or Dragon World, you know, yeah. a lot of the themes, you know. So, you know, I could go on forever. I think From Beyond has some of my mm -hmm. best stories uh, spring writing so it all depends you know on on the film and the circumstance and uh, another favorite for sure probably in my top 10 is troll i think troll has some really really nice stuff in it that's hard to say i have lots of favorites in different categories you mentioned playing a dichotomy style as in whenever you know like the house on sorority road and how instead of doing the synthy style you chose to go with the more maybe we'll call it a more organic style of orchestration i now that you mentioned that i do kind of notice that friends i don't know if this is intentional but my interpretation of like your puppet master score presentation of puppet master even though it was charles band's penchant for the comic book and it made it like a comic book puppet master was still built as a horror flick so it's supposed to be scary and yet you chose to use i think as chromatic i'm using the proper term your score is actually quite playful which stands apart from how the film would open because you got the the mansion on the cliff andre toulon and the evil puppets and your your score you're actually playing with us as the credits are rolling just on the title card and i kind of noticed that some of your other scores you seem to have that proclivity where you just it's almost like you're toying with somebody so yeah you're taking the complete opposite of what we're supposed to gather from the film even from beyond actually that you'll do some cues and stuff that's not untrue taking puppet master that's interesting because puppet master I, I always viewed it in a very different way and i think it's part of the reason for the success of that film as well as the franchise see the puppets for me in that film and if you go back to the original film the puppets are actually victims mm -hmm. so the puppets were are not inherently bad they do bad things but they do them for the right reasons if you think about it toulon was a good guy it was the nazis who fucked them up and screwed with them and created all the all the horror so the mm -hmm. puppets were in fact and again i'm referring specifically to the first film maybe the first three films the puppets were in, in effect getting a type of revenge so so what had to exist in that theme and in the music was not only that playfulness because they're puppets but there had to be a sense of tragedy and sadness that's why i use minor chords going to majors in the way that i do there had to be an element of sadness because they're they're victim like toulon is a victim yeah they do bad things but they're actually victims and they're getting revenge on the bad guys the nazis and you know in the franchise bad people or what have you so it had to have that ingredient of sadness in there as well as the kind of playfulness of the puppetry and all of that but the driving force was one that had to evoke more tragedy than anything as well as the sort of circusy puppet nature of it what i'm referring to when i talk about going underneath what you're seeing and hearing in film that's exactly what i'm talking about that's that third dimension what's driving all of this so if you get to those lower levels or deeper not lower but deeper levels good scoring i think comes out of exploring those things richard earlier you mentioned your father albert 
I wanted to ask you, what sort of insights did he give you and Charles sort of instilled in you guys that you guys took forward trying to navigate film? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Well, what I take from my upbringing around my father is you should really care about what you do. And that, I think, comes from his father, my grandfather, Max Band, who was quite a famous artist, painter, and sculptor. My father always, he liked his independence. That's why, even though he worked for years with John Huston and was not only his assistant for a matter of years, but also wrote some screenplays and my father wrote The Red Badge of Courage and worked with Houston. When they split off from one another, that was because of the movie The African Queen. Houston wanted my father to go to Africa, and my father didn't really want to do that because he knew that John Houston, the main reason he wanted to do African Queen was he wanted to go to Africa and hunt live game. And in fact, that's what ended up happening. In fact, that's why the film took like over a year to shoot in Africa with uh, various people getting very sick and a few people dying and all of that. Houston's main uh, thing was he wanted to go and hunt in Africa, do safaris or whatever. Anyway, that's when my father and he kind of went their separate ways. And that's within a year, that's when we went to Sweden and that whole period of my father's life. But he always left, my father always left an impression. If you're going to do something creatively, do it as best you can. Don't treat it like just another thing to do, you know, or or whatever. You care about your creativity and your process. Try to do the best you can. I think that's in an overall sense what I came away with. You mentioned good film scores earlier. I wanted to ask you, is there any film scores that stand out in your mind as <laughs> your personal favorite or perfect or just things that you look to for inspiration? Well, obviously, I mean, good film scores, something like, I mean, Maurice Jarre, Dr. Shivago, incredible scoring that, say, talking from that era, I mean, obviously we could go back further, you know, to the Max Steiners and the Newmans, uh, all that, but wh- where I started really paying more attention to music was more, you know, from like the 60s on, let's just say 1960s on. So the, the Maurice Jars, without question, the Jerry Goldsmith, I think probably he's probably one of the best film scorers ever. I like Jerry a lot more than I like John Williams, even though I totally admire John Williams and, and a lot of what he's done. I mean, there's a lot of good talent out there uh, as far as today's crop of people. I mean, Tommy Newman, I think, is incredible today. He really, almost more than anybody I know today, he really gets it. He has a way of getting to that third dimension I was talking about. His scoring is fantastic. There's there's a lot of talent out there. You kind of putting me on the spot. I'll probably kick my. <laughs> it's uh, this is it's not fine. Saying you know certain people. I mean, uh, James Newton Howard has done some incredible stuff as well. I admire a lot of different people. What's one movie that you would wish you could score? Past or you know present or just you know what's that one movie that's like man I want to score that. That's actually an easy one because it was a film that I was supposed to score for a better part of a year and it ended up not happening. That was a little film called The Terminator. Brad Fidel, he's most famous because I think James Cameron both times came up to him and said, I need a score in a matter of weeks. And Brad Fidel went in there and I'm probably being a little facetious, but like two weeks created some of the most memorable pieces. When you hear that hammer on the anvil and you know you know the character that is supposed to appear on screen. So one of the most iconic 80s science fiction action themes ever. Like, I don't know any others that would beat it. Robocop, maybe, probably, <laughs> arguably. Brad did, uh, he was the right person for the job, even though I didn't get it. The reality is that the producer was a friend of mine. The producer was Gail Ann Hurd, and Gail and yeah. I, originally, we were going to do an orchestral score. That was the original intent for Terminator. But, as you mentioned, what ended up happening is... Well, a couple of things. One, they ran out of money and they <laughs> ran out of time. And so they there was no way they could afford an orchestra for the score. And so what ended up happening was for, for myself is at that point, I really didn't do electronics. I was only doing orchestral scores at that point. I had no idea about electronics or how to do them and all that. Whereas Brad 
really knew that stuff. And the reason I know a lot of this is we shared the same music editor as well. And that's exactly what happened is that they were out of money and out of time. And to the best of my recollection, at least what I was told by the music editor who will remain nameless, but a good, very good guy, is that they came to Brad and they were totally out of money and that they really couldn't pay him. But Brad insisted that they at least pay his music editor. And he knocked out that score in a matter of several weeks. And, you know, with an all electronic score, he did a great job. I couldn't have done that. I had, I didn't know about electronics at that time. But I'll tell you one thing, it wasn't too many years after that where I realized that electronics were going to be a big thing and I had to start learning them. That's the reality. I'll be honest. And I, I'll start the Kickstarter tomorrow if you want to do it. I would love to do a concept album in which was just your original rendition of what Terminator was supposed to sound. You were one of those people that, you know, it helped to seed that love for scores because i buy music scores all the time in fact the other day i think i bought i bought a copy of the sword and the sorcerer just because i love the music score as silly as that sounds but there's an importance that that should not be understated i i can't argue that point the the uh, (laughs) the, you know the uh play a vital part. I mean, there's an interesting case. It was many years ago, like 50 years ago or something. It was a court case that happened in in France. To sum it all down, the court had to declare who the real creators of a film were. And they came up with three main creators. That was the writer, the director, and the composer, which I found interesting. Very interesting. Appropriate, quite appropriate, because there's some scores I'll listen to and everything else fills in the space with the music to see imagination connects. You can't have one without the other. I, I agree 100%. And to me, that's kind of the test of time. There's two tests of time. That's one of them. And people say that to me a lot, a lot with Puppet Master. Everybody says the same thing, that they cannot think of Puppet Master without thinking of the music and vice versa. Every time they hear the music, they can't disassociate it with Puppet Master. They're one and the same. They can't disassociate. Similar thing with Reanimator and several other films and that's sort of it's that and the music that's written that sort of if it stands the test of time and you can come back and do re-releases 30 years later and it still stands up then it has stood the test of time that's the alchemy of cinema you have to have all these components and they create they breathe life into something that otherwise might not catch people and i for one i can sit here mentally right now and think of the first time that blade and Pinhead and all of the other wonderful characters of Puppet Master when they pop up on screen and that mysterious almost kind of wonderkin music pops up and I'm I'm invested it's been lives in my head space and it's going to be there until 50 years later when I pass on and hopefully my kids have watched enough of it to where they're stuck with it too so <laughs> Are you all electronic now, or do you ever get actually get to stand behind the podium and raise the baton and do a little maestro work? Uh, right. Well, most of what I'm doing now is generated, you know, with samples and stuff and a lot of stuff that I've created as well. I am doing a film that I'll be scoring later this year, and I, I will be back with a decent-sized orchestra probably probably November. Yeah, probably, probably late mid to late November. So no, those opportunities, they, they're fewer and far between, obviously. But for years, what something that I used to do, actually, I was one of the first who actually started doing this. Now it's more commonplace. I used to marry certain sections of the orchestra with sampled stuff. So I did a lot of stuff where I'd have like a live string section and brass, let's say, and then I would do the percussion and woodwinds uh, electronically. So I did a lot of this meshing of live stuff and sample stuff. You know, obviously that started because of budget, but I like doing that and that works out well. So it really depends on project, but so many, so many are, are budget constrained, very expensive, you know, to do, to do that with, with live players. I mean, it was the way, like I said, the first 15 odd years I was 
scoring. That's it was all real orchestra stuff, but everything's everything's changed. But anyway, later, like I said, later this year, I will be doing a score that and get back with the orchestra. Richard, you touched on this a bit earlier. I wanted to ask you how much input, if any, do directors have on composition? Has there ever been a situation where someone will come back and say, hey, I'm really not feeling this section right here. What do you think about changing it, perhaps, or something along the lines of that? You know, it's interesting. I've, I know a lot of composers who have had those situations come up quite a, quite a bit. I've never had a score thrown out. In fact, I've had many of my agents over the years saying the reason I'm not doing A scores is because I haven't had a score thrown out yet. Once you get a score thrown out, then you you tend to go up. Don't ask me the logic behind that. <laughs> but well, I, you know, so, so I'm working really hard to have a score thrown out. No, I'm kidding. You. <laughs> no, I've never had a score thrown out. I have had a few instances where a director or producer or whatever said that this cue isn't quite working for me. Maybe you should take this approach or whatever. You know, and you deal with that. It's very few times has that happened. I mean, I know that once I've, once I've honed into a film and what it's supposed to do, I'm... I'm pretty confident in what needs to be done. So no, there's, I mean, yes, there's been a few of those, but few and far between. Thank goodness. Do you have any of your scores available to buy? Is there any site? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, first of all, my website, I have a store on my own website and my website is richardbandmusic.com altogether, www.richardbandmusic.com. A lot of cool things on the website, by the way. And there's a whole store and you can purchase CDs there. You can purchase... Damn, he's got vinyl. Vinyl. <laughs> Terrorvision right. on vinyl. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> there you go. We can ask very politely for you to uh, sign these for us. Anybody who gets something from my site, it's all—it's always autographed. No question about that. And yeah, I mean, there's several record companies that have been consistent over the years in putting out my material. Uh, when it comes to vinyls, Waxworks Records, of course, I mean, their very first vinyl ever was Reanimator, of course, from Beyond. And later this year, Castle Freak is going to come out. Of course, uh, Intrada Records, they put out a lot of my stuff. Dragon Domain, they're putting out stuff. Those are probably the main War Dog. You know, there's four or five companies that consistently put out my stuff. But whatever, whatever's always put out there, I always get a, a, a few of them for the fans who, you know, want to have them per personally autographed or want them for me. That's why the store is there and it's it's always an interesting experiment you know where possible if you ever show a film that somebody really likes and you show it to them and take the music out of the couple of scenes right <laughs> just show it to them one that they're that they love the film they know the film upside down then you play it back to them without the music and they go what huh it doesn't work right mm -hmm. and so yeah it's 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 inter it's interesting it's you know every so often if i do a master class or something or something like that play just play some play a few scenes back of classic movies you know with the dialogue with the effects and just take the music out if you can <laughs> and you'll see some interesting reactions people realize real fast yeah i would say you can even like even in films that just don't have a score where they should have it you can tell sometimes like my wife and i were watching a movie the other night and just it had a really stark lack of a soundtrack it's like there's something missing here like you just know it sometimes even if mm -hmm. you're not too attuned to the filmmaking process you know you talked about trust earlier and the trust level and a, a composer being able to make a soundtrack make it the right way have you ever reached a point in your career because i mean you know you're not john williams you're not Hans zimmer but to people like us people who are huge fans of, of genre filmmaking and stuff that's maybe not like triple a titles everybody knows you like when a movie starts and that music comes on my wife and i always look at each other and then your name pops up on the screen because you can tell it's you before the name shows up have you ever reached a point where people are coming to you because of your name where they want that richard band soundtrack oh all the time oh definitely oh definitely that's definitely the case it's good to know that you, you get that recognition because if you go to like you know somebody on the street who only watches huge budget films they may not know your name but i feel like uh, among folks like us you're pretty well known so i'm yeah. glad that i'm glad that you get that recognition even in the in the the filmmaking industry i do i mean i, I wish i would get that recognition for a hundred million dollar movie where i could ha have a million or two to do 
to score, you know, a la John Williams or what have you. That would be nice. I wouldn't, uh, I don't think I'd turn it down. <laughs> of, course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I have found out that's interesting that I, I guess I undervalued over the, over the years was the appreciation of my fan base and the fan base of the independent movies and genre movies that I've done a lot of, you know, and I really didn't realize that up until about, I don't know, maybe maybe six years ago, seven years ago when I started doing a few conventions, you know, and traveling around the country. When I first started doing them, I first asked, you know, who would want to meet me? Who would want to come to a convention? And <laughs> And, uh, you know, talk to me. That's This is a ridiculous waste of time. And I was very shocked, pleasantly so, the reception that I would consistently get of people who look at the, these genre films, uh, be them independent horror, fantasy, or whatever, that they really did have an appreciation. So, and, and I don't find that appreciation level when it comes to the really big, big films. I and mean, yeah, I mean, everybody's going to love John Williams or you know, if Jerry were alive, Jerry Goldsmith and, and, you know, people, you know, of course they like a lot of the Hans Zimmer stuff and all that, but I'll tell you, I'll, I'll put our fan base up against their fan base any day of the week. You'll win every time. There's no doubt. I totally agree with that. I think there's a, a bigger passion behind mm -hmm. supporting an artist like you in this scene rather than, than the big budget scene. I, I think that's absolutely true. It's almost kind of downplaying to say like, oh, big budget, because what you do, in essence, you still create music that connects the audience more so than even like we can watch a hundred blockbusters and just, eh, whatever. But time and time and again, the fans are going, oh, when I hear this, I am reminded this is, mm -hmm. this is Richard. How many people are watching a modern film and they say, oh, that's a, uh, that's a uh, blah, 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 or Hans right. Zimmer. It's, 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 yeah, I mean, Hans that's also true. Like, I don't think I can pick out a Hans Zimmer soundtrack. I can pick out a John Williams soundtrack. Because I kind of think they all sound the same. Absolutely. <laughs> For real. Like, I can pick out a Richard Band soundtrack as soon as the movie starts. It's incredible. Yeah, because you hear it and you go, all right, it's brought me in. And unconsciously, I'm about to expect some fantastical cinema before mm. me and sure it doesn't have the budget that these films do but there's still there's ingenuity in starvation and i know that sounds weird but it's not weird because necessity is the it's mother the mother of invention, of invention. <laughs> absolutely because when you're starved, you will do whatever it takes to accomplish what you're doing. And there will be someone 100 years from now that will hear a Richard Band score and go, I know that guy. Hey, Puppet Master. Yeah. Certain people have certain fingerprints. Richard Band, I hear yeah. him. I can tell that playful orchestra. I can tell it's him. Just the same way, as soon as I hear some industrial percussion, chances are it's going to be junky. That I can kind of hear certain nuance. It's legendary because it's so nuanced into so many projects i just want to say mr band that well thank you thank you Very kind. It, it, because i'm probably going to watch my puppet master collection right after this and <laughs> sit down and, and, and enjoy it fully so well you should enjoy it because see nostalgia is very powerful you see you it certainly you us when we were kids and so yeah we're gonna side with the puppet master series or something because <laughs> we were little kids so dude you just need to take that and coast on with it because like you've got an entire generation now that you can just sit here and exploit for decades <laughs> now <laughs> when i did metal storm for universal that was insane it was i think over 75 minutes of music and huge orchestra five live synthesizers and I had 11 days to do the whole thing. <laughs> God. And commiserate uh, with people not having time or or money, you know. Um, that uh, happens. You're in all this scene and all this action, been in with Full Moon forever. What's your favorite horror movie? Work's done, you finish with scoring with the Philharmonic, you're going to sit down and just jam out to an old classic. What do you reach well, for? Well, as far as, well, I, I, I really like sci-fi actually i think the original alien is i just adore nice. that movie one of the best as far as horror i gotta give it either to the omen or the exorcist those both really really got to me they they were both exceptional and i think in the in that 
I think the reason for that, by the way, Omen or the Exorcist, is again because I was brought up in Italy. Italy is, you know, all Catholic basically. Yeah. Having been brought up in Rome, the Vatican was there. The whole religious content. I was around so many in my upbringing, so many priests and that whole thing. I mean, I'm not Catholic, but I, but you can't escape it. There, it's everywhere. The good, the bad, and the very ugly. I've seen it all when it comes to the church, and I think because I have such a dislike for the church because of my upbringing those particular films hit home for me the strongest i think that i think that's why i've thought about that now and then over the years so i and i think that's the reason because i was so exposed to it growing up so you're going to sit down and watch the omen you're going to sit down and watch alien what's your go-to snack <laughs> Yeah. Depends on the time of day. If it's after seven, six thirty, seven at night, my go-to snack is a big bottle of booze. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Well, depending on the time of year, like now, since it's so damn hot, I'd probably go. <laughs> For, go so, for some popsicles or something, you know? Nice. Right. Okay, that'll work. Yeah. I've got to ask, Richard, what is your favorite sci-fi film? As a fellow sci-fi fan, what is the sci-fi film you watch time and time again? I'm trying to remember this movie, and you'll you'll probably, I'm, I'm bad with titles, but you'll probably know what I'm talking about. Oh, no, no, I don't know. I just remember the title. Silent Running with Bruce Dern. I oh, yes. That. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Absolutely. That, that has left a big impression in my life because it was very ahead of its time on one level. It talked about within the story the, the necessity of keeping life going, vegetation, all those sorts of things, you know, in, in a possible post apocalyptic world and how we keep life alive and there were so many different levels to that film and that's one of I've always liked that another one the original uh, invaders from Mars that's going back to the 50s right uh -huh. that for some reason that one that one got to me especially when they when they would be sucked into the earth into the tunnels or what have you that that scared the hell out of me <laughs> as a child I mean I liked of course movies like the blob or the the ant and all that those were good but they were kind of a little bit hokey but the ones that really like got to be that's what i'm talking about those those were some uh, the, the the original fly i love that yeah. movie. that was a great one parts of that still creep me out when he's asking for help when he's trapped the okay, spider you can hear and see it in my brain the second oh. yeah it's terrible <laughs> but yeah, that that was absolutely and of course, you know, I, I loved a lot of the, the old Twilight Zones. How can you not love those? Or some of the oh, old yeah. Outer Limits. Those are classics. I mean, their stories are timeless. The Night Gallery. Don't forget the Night Gallery. Oh, yeah. Night, night Gallery, also, yep. Also good stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, some of those yeah. older ones, they had some really good stuff. The original Twilight Zone movie, mm -hmm. the first one, that had some great stuff in it. I mean, that airplane sequence with John Lithgow, that sticks in my mind, you know, so that's another one. I had the, the uh, good fortune, of course, to work with Mick Garris on several movies, as well as the Masters of Horror series. And we did some really good stuff on there, as well as the, well, the last thing I did for, for him was Nightmare Cinema, the movie Nightmare Cinema, which was an anthology a la Twilight Zone. And that had some some really good stuff in it as well. Yeah, there's a whole slew of really cool stuff. Richard, I don't think we're going to keep you much longer here. We've had you all afternoon, basically. Been my pleasure. Once again, it's www.richardbandmusic.com. Yeah, well, so guys, keep keep me keep me posted as to uh, when this goes up, where, and all that, do, and, and stay Will in do. touch. I definitely have something that's been bubbling for the last two decades, actually three decades. The problem that I've always run into is that it's huge it's big and significant let's just put it that way we shall carry that conversation on at a different time richardbandmusic.com until then how about that <laughs> Go, richardbandmusic.com until then all right hey guys thanks. it was fun fantastic okay guys be safe welcome to the night you think you know night demon then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. 
We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.